Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. When David saw that the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned, I the shepherd have done wrong, but these are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. A noted professor who taught apologetics at a major university loved engaging people outside of the classroom, people he would encounter in public, on the sidewalk, in the stores, wherever he could generate some conversation and engage them in discussions about God. Obviously, some of the people that he talked to were at various stages of their spiritual walk, if they had any spiritual walk to talk about at all. Some were atheists. Some were agnostics. Some wished not to waste any time whatsoever talking to him about God or God things. And some who were willing to discuss with him and debate to some degree. But they were very skeptical, resistant about any notion about God, but willing to go toe-to-toe with him. But even in the hardest cases, if this man had an opportunity he would eventually bring the discussion down to one question because a lot of the discussion and the debate consisted with him having questions fired at him and him responding. But it would come to a point where he would ask a question and it would change the whole nature of the discussion. He would ask them, what do you do with your guilt? And at this point, it seems everybody aligns themselves into two different categories. There are those who admit they have guilt, and then they share their personal remedy. And then those who say, I don't have any guilt. Basically, no conscience. Or virtually saying, what guilt are you talking about? I want to talk to you today about the issue of guilt. There's a number of stories I could have chosen to use as a springboard for this. But the one about David and the numbering of Israel and how he finally dealt with that, I think, will do adequately for us today. First, we have the sin. And the story, like I said, is probably familiar to many of us. David takes a census to determine the size of his military. And we have some clues in this story that give us a more detailed explanation of what was going on. There's an account of this same story in First Chronicles. For those people, and I don't know that any we would have anyone here today, but there are those who delight in reading and discovering what seems to be apparent contradictions in the Bible. And this is one of those apparent contradictions, but it is not a contradiction. So I thought I would just cover this real quickly and get it out of the way, so it won't be a problem for us. In the account in 2 Samuel, in the beginning of that story, it clearly indicates that God is the one that provoked David to number Israel. And as we understand the whole story, David's act of numbering Israel did not please God. It was considered a sin, and we'll deal with that 
in a little bit as well. If one would flip over to First Chronicles and read the account there, he would see where it says, Satan provoked David to number Israel. And that's one of those shallow, superficial aha moments for those who want to believe that the Bible is untrustworthy and full of contradictions. So who really did this? But the fact of the matter is, we are dealing with people who are writing from a different culture and using a Hebrew language, which is quite different from our language. I've said in times before, and I even shared it in our last Sunday night small group and Bible study, we have expressions in the English language that we don't bat an eye at. And there's an expression right there that a thousand years from now, people will wonder why Americans went around batting their eyes at things. What did that mean to them to do that? Or if they would study our language and we would write our thoughts down and and they would say, what is it with these people that they're always talking about laughing their head off? What's with that? They wouldn't understand if they were not familiar with those things that we are familiar with. We're not familiar with Hebrew. And in the Hebrew language, it was quite common to use that active verb, which would make it seem as we read it in the English that it's attributing that action to the person with which the active verb is associated, that God provoked David, or that God hardened Pharaoh's heart is another instance of that. When in reality we understand by those who have studied the language and inform us of those differences in the ways they express things, that God allowed things that in the Hebrew language many times was just written to say that that's what he did. But we understand by the context he allowed it. So there's no discrepancy between the two. Satan is the one that provoked David. God allowed the provocation. And we don't have a problem with that. That one being laid to rest, let's continue with the main points today. First of all, we understand that Satan is the tempter. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. That's a very clear scripture. God doesn't tempt you to sin and then punish you for the failure. It's just a principle we have to be comfortable with and understand and base everything off of that concept. Satan is the tempter. God may test us, but the difference between a test and a temptation is the test is merely like the trees that are in the Garden of Eden, that you can have all the trees except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was the test. The temptation was Satan coming along and trying to entice them to the tree that they are forbidden bidden to take of. That's the difference between the test and the temptation. The temptation is an alluring and an encouragement to do the wrong thing. Satan is the tempter. The second thing about this story concerning the element of the sin that was committed is there's no biological age. There's no stage of your spiritual development at which you are immune or incapable A failure. The oldest one here, you're not immune from failure. The one who has been serving the Lord the longest and made the most spiritual growth in your life, you're not immune from failure. If you could sit down and talk to some of our seniors that are here today and ask any one of them, those that are closest to the end of their life, or have lived the longest. Ask them, do you feel less prone to sin today than ever before because of how old you are? Do you feel less prone to sin because of how much Bible you've read or how many things God has done in your life? An honest person would not respond to you and say, I have arrived. 
Young man, young lady, if you can just make it past 80 or 85, there are no more temptations in life. You outgrow them. But it's, it's just not the case. David was toward the end of his life. He had but a few years left on earth. And he was serving as king. And David's life is an interesting study. It was full of remarkable victories. Tremendous accomplishments. We think of David the shepherd boy. And the uh, amazing stories of him being given the responsibility of watching the sheep. But a lion comes, and what does David do? His testimony is, as I tore him apart with my hands, killed him with my hands. Same thing with a bear. That's quite a feat. I cannot tell you that I have ever been willing to tackle a lion or a bear. I'm a little bit skittish about picking up a small rodent. They might bite. They might get the best of me. But David did. And what a resume as a young shepherd boy he already had. He took this resume with him when he heard that the giants were confronting Israel and no man was willing to fight them. Well, this young man was just so full of faith and knew what God could do through him that we have the story of a young shepherd boy who knew the power of God moving in his life, and he said, I'll just take my little sling and go out, and I'll do away with this guy. What's the big problem? What a life this young man had. He was crowned king, coming from very humble beginnings. He conquered Jerusalem, driving out the Jebusites and making the city of Zion his new headquarters. That was David and his victories. And God was pleased with David and made a covenant with him. He loved him so much, your throne will last forever. So what a history. What a list of accomplishments and victories. But David had failures too. Who could forget? He was not perfect. We're disappointed when we read the aspect of David's victories and accomplishments to see his famous failure with Bathsheba. He morphed from this innocent shepherd boy full of faith in God to this corrupt man who would not only steal another man's wife, but he would driven, be driven forward to murder the other man, the other man, the, the woman's husband, in order to cover up for his ill deed. And we can't hardly assimilate that. It's hard to get our brain around it. We'll, we are bewildered how David could let his own sons get away with incest and do nothing about it. How he could let his own son Absalom get away with political insurrection and do nothing about it. David was losing control of his own family. He can whip, where, whip bears and lions and giants, but he can't control his own sons. And one hopes that after David has gone through the experience of many victories and tasted of the power and the strength of the Lord in his life, we're in hopes that after he's had these monumental failures that he sought forgiveness for, that an old wise king, we always like to look to the older people for wisdom. So it's logical we look to David, the old wise king, and think, you know, at this stage of his life, he's got a few years left. He's had his ups. He's had his downs. He's learned a lot. Surely this man is not going to make the kind of blunders that he made as a young, ambitious man coming into his kingship. He's probably going to just glide into heaven. The rest of his life's going to be okay. But it's at that point where he commits this sin of numbering Israel, and we're baffled. Except, we're all under the same curse. We're all exposed to the same tempter. And as much as we think, how could David, after all he had done and all he had learned, still make this mistake? The wake-up thing is, you can too. 
There is no point in our life at any age or spiritual development that we can let down our guard. We still have to be on guard against the enemy lest our foot should slip. And the next thing is we are ultimately judged for our motives. As this story unfolds, we can clearly see that numbering Israel is not ultimately a good thing for David to do. But why? Israel had been numbered before. God had commanded Moses, number Israel. But David, you would think he would be entitled at least to know who was in his kingdom. But there's something here about David's motive, about his attitude that was displeasing to God. Not just the act of the census, but something about his motive. And friends, we are ultimately judged for our motive and not for our results. I've done a lot of things with a good motive, and I've had bad results, and I'm thankful God looks on the heart at that point, aren't you? And I've done some things with less than a pure motive, but I had good results. And that's when I'm not so thankful God looks on the heart. Because I want to point him to the accomplishment. Well, God, I may have not had the best motive, but look what I did. And that's where God's still looking on the heart. I see what you did. I see what good came out of it. And we, we do this quite often. In various ways in our life, we want to point to, after all, it all turned out okay. And that washes away the bad motive that we started with. No, it does not wash away the ill-conceived plan, the bad motive, the impure motive. We will still be judged for what we intended regardless of how well it turned out. So David says to his men, I want to take a census. I want to know how large my army is. And we don't know if this was pride. Some commentators suggest that it's possible that he could manipulate the taxes and increase the taxes on people depending on the size of his military and the needs that that would be there. Uh, So is it pride? Is it financial gain? Is he getting ready to do something with a large enough military that would not be God's will? We're left in the dark as to what his real motive was, but we're not left in the dark about he had a wrong motive. And Joab, his nephew, and the commander of his military, senses this is not right. Again, we don't have the details. We only have the facts staring us in the face that Joab says to the king, I hope and pray, king, that God multiplies your army abundantly, a hundredfold. I hope and pray that you live to see that increase and you're blessed by it. But I cannot for the life of me make any sense out of why you want to do this. What is the benefit? And I'm asking you as your friend, I'm begging you as your nephew, I'm telling you as your commander of the army, I'm saying, don't do this. And the Bible says, but David's will prevailed and overruled. He was going to do what he was going to do. He could not see what Joab was telling him. He could not grasp that what he was doing was ultimately wrong. Couldn't sense this would be an offense to God. His mind was set. He was stuck. How many of you have seen people stuck like that? And you try and tell them and their mind is closed. Their eyes are blinded. And they cannot see. They cannot understand. They will not yield. No matter how you try, David's mind was set. That's it. Joab had no alternative. The king says, number Israel, that's what he had to do. 
knowing all along it's a bad idea. Number two, what do you do with your guilt? And first I want to clarify, before I get back to this story, I want to clarify the subject of guilt and what kind of guilt I'm talking about. Let's, just for the sake of today, focus on true guilt and false guilt. False guilt is baseless. It has nothing to do with what is true and accurate. People with a hypersensitive conscience often carry guilt that they are not really to blame for. You've met those people. Some of you here today might be those people. You may have adopted and taken up responsibility or guilt for something that you're not to blame for. You even had to have counselors to tell you it's not your fault. Sometimes this happens in extreme cases, such as where we lose a a loved one in an untimely manner. And we start thinking back on life and reverse engineering everything. And we get back to a point where we decide we have found that one point in life where if we'd have just done something a little bit different, that these people wouldn't have taken the direction they took, and therefore they wouldn't be where they were when they were there, and they wouldn't have died. And then we say, it's my fault. No matter how contrived that might be, then they carry that. It's my fault my son died. It's my fault my daughter died. It's my fault my fault. If I'd have been there, if I'd have done this, if I'd have heeded their words years ago, if I, and this guilt that we carry, that's the false guilt. It happens to people who are victimized by other people. Sexual abuse victims who are somehow carrying the guilt of saying somehow I caused that abuse in my life. And it takes counseling to help them understand you are the victim here. You're not the perpetrator. But we're not going to deal with false guilt today because that doesn't apply to what I'm talking about. So if that's the case, and if there are people who are dealing with false guilt, that's another issue. But what we're dealing with is true guilt. The act that David did resulted in true guilt. He did it. He was wrong. He was guilty. So how do we deal with true guilt? How did David deal with it? How do you deal with it? How do people generally deal with it? I think you'll clearly see, as I list some of these possibilities, you've probably run into somebody along the way who has dealt with guilt in the wrong way. First of all, justification. This could take on the Robin Hood effect. We grew up hearing the story of Robin Hood. The whole premise is shaky. But did we even think about that when we read this story like it was a noble thing? And then kids went out and they played Robin Hood. How do you play Robin Hood? You steal things. And how do you get away with stealing things because you justify it? We justify our guilt by thinking with the Robin Hood effect, those people deserve that anyway. So it's no big deal. And the good that I did with it justifies what I did. You can steal from rich people because, after all, they can't use all that money. They won't miss it. And these people are very needy, so if I do this act, if I steal, it's okay. Justification. That's just one way of justifying our guilt. We justify uh, by comparison. How many times have we, when looking at our, our behavior, our actions, quickly started going down the list and saying, but I'm not as bad as, and you point out several different people. I know what I'm doing, but they're worse than I am. Therefore, I'm okay because I'm not as bad as people I know. We deal with guilt that way. The argument is, I refuse to feel guilty because the thing I'm doing is very common. Everybody's doing it. Therefore, why should I feel guilty? The second way we deal with guilt is self-improvement. 
once we've committed an act we're guilty of, then we set on this plan of, of balancing the books. The guilt is the negative. So we're going to do a lot of positive things. And if we do enough positive things, we feel better about ourselves, and we think the negative just goes away. So we balance the books. We do self-improvement. We obviously can be very disgusted with our failure. And so we go on this, this kick to reform ourselves. Self-reform, self-improvement, and it's virtually ineffective. It's very weak. And it doesn't really deal with the guilt issue except it just makes us feel better. We did one bad wrong, we'll two, do two good rights. And I must be back in God's favor. This is very common. People who really don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but they realize right and wrong. And I've ran into people, you start talking about God, and they've got this self-improvement thing. Well, I used to do this, but I haven't done that in years. I'm really doing good. That doesn't deal with the guilt. Number three, we deal with it with denial. Either those who deny their guilt are liars or they have a dead conscience. They have no remorse for any wrongdoing. Or there's another possibility. They're totally ignorant that they've done wrong. Any of those are possible. And denial tends to be the most radical form of dealing with our guilt. Now let's go back to the story of David and David's example. He refuses to listen to the pleadings of Joab. He overrules their objections. He gets his way. Nine months and 20 days later, Joab and the men return to the king, having gone throughout the kingdom. And they give the report. In Israel, there are 800,000 able-bodied men. In Judah, there's a half a million. And interestingly, and some of you will understand this, it is at the reading of the report that suddenly something switches on in David. He has had over nine months to think about the taking of the census. I'm sure he thought about it often during that time. Possibly every day, knowing that the census was going on and anticipating the results and thinking what he's going to do when he hears the results. Nine months of contemplating this. We do not have any indication that David changed his attitude at all during that time. Yet whenever Joab comes back and he reads the report to the king, no quicker are the numbers out of his mouth. 800,000 in Israel, 500,000 in Judah, that David says, I have sinned. What's with that? What is with the blinders being taken off by the enemy? Maliciously, might I add, only at the moment when the sin is completed. Do you understand the dynamic that's going on here? How we are kept blind to the wrongness of what we do until we do it, and then the enemy jerks the blinders off and says, Do you see what a fool you've been? Now, how many times have we been fooled by the enemy? Pressing forward until the sin is done, until we are guilty and dead to rights, and then the enemy lets us feel the compunction for our sins. He doesn't play fair. Have you figured that out yet? David's conscience smites him, strikes him with deep regret. And he knew immediately upon hearing these numbers, he was in trouble. And the first recorded words of David are this. I've sinned greatly. 
in all that I have done. And now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. Take away the guilt. Notice, did you notice what he did not pray? He did not pray, grant me forgiveness. He prayed, just take away the guilt. If we can just get rid of feeling guilty, everything's all right. But it's not true. I heard the story of a man that told about his son who had a condition where he had no feeling in his hands. He couldn't sense any pain. They had to watch this young man very carefully because he could lay his hand on a hot stove and not know it, do severe damage to his body, but no sense for pain. He could cut himself where we have the nerve endings that if our hand encounters even a tiny splinter, splinter we recoil. But he had no pain. And they had to watch him constantly because that mechanism that guards us against the pain that can be inflicted on our body was dead. And it's the same thing with a deadened conscience. It's the same thing with take the guilt away. It's the same thing with don't let me feel bad for the things I do. It's the only thing that's protecting you from destroying yourself. And if we can harden our heart to where we hear the truth and we understand our wrongness and we say, I don't feel anything. We're a danger to ourselves. God gave us that protection of the guilt to help us avoid doing the things that are destructive to us. David did not have a dead conscience. He had a strong will, a stubborn will, but he didn't, didn't have a dead conscience. And when he hears the report and he is awash in guilt, he stops and prays, God, would you take away the guilt? That's not what we need. Guilt is that mechanism effectively drives us to make reconciliation. Simply praying for God to take away the sense of guilt is pointless. Like if the guilt's removed, everything's back to normal. This interesting thing happens when David says, take away my guilt. God moves on a prophet in the kingdom. And Gad goes to King David before the next morning. God has spoken to Gad and given him the message. And Gad arrives the next morning in front of David and said, God spoke to me in the middle of the night. This is all happening within hours. And the prophet stands there before the king and says, You have a choice. You've sinned. You've angered the Lord. You would not listen to counsel. Now, choose. You can have three years of famine in the land. You can have three months fleeing from an enemy who pursues you. And number three, you can have three days of plague in the land. In every one of these scenarios, I want you to consider something. The sin that David committed revealed to him the strength of his military. 800,000 and 500,000. 1.3 million able-bodied men ready to go to war. That was the pride of the king. And it didn't make any difference what he chose, the three years, the three months, or the three days. God was going to whittle that army back down to where he didn't have anything to be proud of. He was going to lose the very thing he was putting his trust in. You choose. And David is beside himself. How do you make a choice between bad and worse and worse? Where do you go? What do you do? 
So about the only wise thing the king did in this whole thing is he said, I'm going to choose three days of plague because the way I look at it, if I put myself at the mercy of people, they will not have any mercy. But if I throw myself on the Lord, maybe there's a chance that he will be merciful. Three days of plague. I choose three days of plague. God's a jealous God. He doesn't want us putting our trust in anything that eclipses him. And when we think that we're healthy enough, we don't need God. God is terribly offended. And he can take away the thing you trust in. Until you discover what you really need to trust in. If you're talented enough, you don't think you need God's help. God is offended. If you're financially stable enough, you don't think you need God's help. God can fix that for you. It doesn't make any difference what you've got, that if you think you don't need God because you're set, you're in trouble like David. We have to understand that no matter what we have, whether it's plenty or very little. Our attitude still needs to be every day. God, I need you every hour. I need you every day. I cannot live without you. I cannot survive without you. Like a deer panning for the waters, my soul longs after you. Can you say that? Do you mean it? Do you need God? And some people don't think they need God. They're not sick. They're not destitute. Everything seems to be going their way, and they just don't have much need for God. But we need to learn the lesson the easy way and not the hard way. We need Him desperately, regardless of our earthly situation. If we can learn to trust God, then we find out that even a cruise of oil is enough. Because we've learned to trust God. If we learn to trust Him, we find out that just a leather sling and five smooth stones is enough. Because God is sufficient. When we trust God, we find out that five loaves of bread and two fishes is plenty. Because we've learned to trust God. When we trust God, we learn a principle that one shall put a thousand to flight and two shall put ten thousand to flight. And if David would have only learned that before he decided to number his army and find out how strong he was, all he had to do is figure out he's got the commander-in-chief. What else do I need? We need to learn the principle of trusting God. The consequence of sin is not just guilt. If people even have that. But it also includes the pain of reaping what you have sown. And the pain and the humiliation and the struggle of making restitution. The remedy. David's a broken man. We can scarcely imagine the weight that is on the king for being so stubborn and so bullheaded as to press forward with a bad plan. Until he is informed, this is going to cost your kingdom, not just you. David cries out and he says, you know, just me and my family. This is my opening scripture. Just me and my family. Well, why does his family want to be involved in this? I find that an odd. Leave the rest of the people alone. You know, it's like I would say, just me. Leave my family alone. But David's bound to determine somebody's going to suffer with him. Just me and my family, but leave these people alone. What do these sheep know? What are they guilty of? He has this discussion with the angel. It's bringing this plague upon the land. And the plague sets upon the kingdom, and immediately, before the three days are completed, immediately... Reports start rolling in 
And the first report they get says there's 70,000 men that have dropped dead. The plague had already begun, and already with the first report, 70,000. This was the deadliest judgment against Israel in all of her history. If you think back to when Korah rebelled, Korah and company rebelled against Moses, 14,700 died. If you think of the disaster at Baal Peor, whenever the king of Moab used the Moabite women to infiltrate Israel and decided to seduce the men, not only into lascivious acts, but also into idol worship. And at that point, 24,000 died. And more than both of those combined, we have the first report coming off of the plague is 70,000 are dead, and it's not done yet. David single-handedly had brought the worst judgment on his people that had ever happened to Israel. Almost three times the number of those who died at Baal Peor. David sees this angel striking his kingdom to death and he pleads with him, can't you just judge me, judge my family, leave the people alone? And David's guilty, and he knows he's guilty. And the penalty for his failure is devastating his kingdom and hurting otherwise innocent people. Now, let me qualify that. The people are not innocent. They have rebelled. They followed Absalom, some of them. They rebelled against David, some of them. They're not totally innocent, but they're innocent of this act. And that's the reason David says these innocent people. But Gad shows up again and talks to David and said, David, go to a a man named Arana. Buy the plot of land where his threshing floor is. He bought more than just the threshing floor. He bought the surrounding land. And buy the threshing floor. And make a sacrifice to the Lord. It's all you've got left. Somebody has to pay the price. Wrong has been done. Sin will exact its portion. There's a commission to be paid for the wrongdoing. And David goes to Arana. He says, I want to buy this land. Arana, the Jebusite, says, well, you know what? He's a wealthy man. He says, I can afford to give it. It's not a big deal. I've got a lot of land. King, you can have it. And David makes this famous statement. He said, I cannot give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I incurred the penalty. And I'm the one that has to feel the pain and the discomfort and the sacrifice of making this right. Now he's beginning to take ownership for his mistake. And David pays Arana for the threshing floor, the land surrounding it. By the way, he buys the wooden tools that are there that will make good firewood. He buys the uh, yoke for the oxen, the wooden yoke. He used that for the fire. He buys the oxen, and that will be my sacrifice. And David builds an altar to the Lord there. The whole time sick at his stomach for his failure. Dealing with the grief that he cannot find any relief from. And not even knowing if this will do any good. But what else do you do? But fall on the mercy of the Lord. And hope that somehow he listens to your cry. David builds the fire. Slaughters the oxen. And throws the carcasses on the fire. And you can smell the meat that is charring. You can hear the fat crackling and sizzling in the flames. And you can see the smoke from that greasy sacrifice curling and working its way to heaven. And something happened. The Bible says God saw the sacrifice and the plague was stopped. The plague was stayed. David had found the key to God's mercy.
something had to die. And although God had proclaimed three days of plague and he wasn't done yet, the sacrifice stopped the judgment. Solomon took that land that David bought under these shameful conditions. And he commissioned a temple to be built there. It was the site of the temple. Solomon's temple didn't survive. Herod built a temple there. But as long as there was a temple on the land, the sacrifices went on at the temple continuously, trying to deal with the failures and the guilt of man. Until the day that the Lamb of God stepped down from heaven, that perfect and that spotless sacrifice that the animal sacrifices through the centuries had amounted to literally rivers of blood, thousands of gallons of blood that had flowed down the altar. Daily sacrifices and seasonal sacrifices and yearly sacrifices and the blood flowed And man was still guilty. Until Jesus came down and took upon himself the form of a servant and submitted himself and humbled himself to the cross. And the sacrifice was made and the moment that Jesus cried out, it is finished. The father heard and acknowledged the sacrifice. And from that point on, God no longer required a single animal sacrifice. Jesus announced it. It's finished. You won't need a temple. You won't need animals anymore. I've done it. It's over. The sacrifice is complete. And the sins are dealt with. Now the problem we have left is the issue of guilt. Part of the problem is that people don't always feel guilty. And that's not the measuring apparatus. You can come into God's house and you can listen to the preaching and the message of salvation and you can leave and never once feel a twinge of guilt in your life. And never feel compelled to step from where you are and walk down and say to the pastor, I need what you're talking about. I'm guilty. You can get up and walk out basically because you say, I don't feel guilty for anything. Why do I need to repent? And that's the problem. Because we don't understand. When you break a law, you're guilty whether you feel guilty or not. And when you break a supreme command, you are supremely guilty. Whether you feel like it or not. And God has made the rules that he expects every living human being to abide by. He doesn't say the rules are just for people who elect to follow me and acknowledge me. He has made the rules for all humanity and it's rejected by a modern philosophy that said God is not just a bunch of rules. God is just a God of love. I beg your pardon. One of the commandments is thou shalt love the Lord thy God. That's a rule. And the fact of the matter is the Bible tells us and we trust God's word. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it doesn't matter if you feel guilty. The declaration of God's word is all have sinned and all are guilty before God. Whether you feel like it or not, we're guilty. And having discovered our guilt before God, the only way of being reconciled to Him is through the sacrifice Of Jesus Christ. It's only through the blood. That we are forgiven. 
It's only through Him that we deal with our guilt. And so it's the Holy Spirit's job to lay it upon every one of us. We are guilty. You can't justify it by having done a few good things. You can't deny it and do away with it. We are all condemned. Except that Jesus offered a way and a path back to God. And the sacrifice was perfect. And the sacrifice was accepted. And the plague of sin upon mankind was stopped the day that Jesus died and sealed the day he rose again. So instead of denying guilt and instead of trying to rehabilitate yourself and balance the books with good works and instead of comparing yourself to others and say, I'm not so bad, I'll show you bad people. Here's what it comes down to is understanding that God says all have failed. All have sinned. Every man and woman have missed the mark. Every one of us. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. How do you deal with your guilt? Whenever this professor would ask that, they begin to answer in how they deal with their guilty feelings. And then he would say, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about your guilty feelings. You may not feel guilty. I'm talking about the fact that God says we have all sinned and come short of the glory. How do you deal with that guilt? And there is no other way except through Jesus Christ. And those of you who are saved, those of you who are born again, those of you who have come to Jesus Christ, you can testify without hesitation that the day you stood before God and said, God, I am sorry that I've offended you and I ask you to forgive me that you had a new lease on life and you suddenly walked away knowing that it didn't make any difference what you've done in your life, how bad it has been or how long ago it was, it's gone. It's gone and you're starting over like a brand new baby, never to be remembered against you again. That's how we deal with the guilt. Would you bow your heads?